Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be reading and discussing chapters 15 and 16 of Burton Watson's translation of the Lotus Sutra. These chapters are called Emerging from the Earth and The Lifespan of the Thus Come One. You'll remember from our previous readings of the Lotus Sutra that it was composed in roughly four phases throughout history. Chapters 15 and 16 were most likely composed and added to the text in the third phase of its composition, around 100 Common Era. During this phase, chapters 10 through 22 were added, with the exception of chapter 12. In chapter 15, numerous bodhisattvas emerge from the earth to help the Buddha preach the Lotus Sutra, and Maitreya asks the Buddha who they all are. The Buddha then reveals that they are his former students from many eons ago when he had just reached enlightenment. Maitreya wonders how this is possible, given that the Buddha has only been alive for several decades. This leads into chapter 16, where the Buddha reveals what many argue is the core teaching of the Lotus Sutra, which is that his lifespan is nearly infinite, and that his entire historical life was actually a skillful means toward enlightening sentient beings. He alleges that he reached his enlightenment many countless eons ago, and that he arose in this world as a teaching tool to demonstrate the path to his disciples. Similarly, though many think that the Buddha will die and pass into final nirvana, he reveals that this too is a skillful means. Thus, the Buddha relays the teaching that he is all but immortal, and that he manifests himself in this world in various forms, such as Shakyamuni, Amitabha, Vairochana, and many others, only to teach beings in a fashion that accounts for their needs for reaching enlightenment. Thus, many interpret this to mean that there is a singular, godlike, primordial Buddha from which all other Buddhas manifest. This doctrinal point goes on to be highly controversial in Buddhism at large, and particularly influential in the Tendai and Nichiren sects of Buddhism. We hope you enjoy. At that time, the Bodhisattvas and the Mahasattvas, who had gathered from the lands of the other directions, greater in number than the sands of eight Ganges, stood up in the midst of the great assembly, pressed their palms together, bowed in obeisance, and said to the Buddha, World-honored one, if you will permit us in the age after the Buddha has entered extinction to diligently and earnestly protect, read, recite, copy, and offer alms to this sutra in the Saha world, we will preach it widely throughout this land. At that time, the Buddha said to the bodhisattvas and mahasattvas, Leave off, good men. There is no need for you to protect this sutra. Why? Because in this Saha world of mine, there are bodhisattvas and mahasattvas who are as numerous as the sands of 60,000 Ganges, and each of these bodhisattvas has a retinue equal to the sands of 60,000 Ganges. After I have entered extinction, these persons will be able to protect, read, recite, and widely preach this sutra. When the Buddha spoke these words, the earth of the thousand million-fold countries of the Saha world all trembled and split open, and out of it emerged at the same instant immeasurable thousands, ten thousands, millions of bodhisattvas and mahasattvas. The bodies of the bodhisattvas were all golden in hue, with the thirty-two features and an immeasurable brightness. Previously they had all been dwelling in the world of empty space beneath the Saha world. But when these bodhisattvas heard the voice of Shakyamuni Buddha speaking, they came up from below. Each one of these bodhisattvas was the leader of his own great assembly, and each brought with him a retinue equal in number to the sands of sixty thousand Ganges. To say nothing of those who brought retinues equal to the sands of fifty thousand, forty thousand, thirty thousand, 20,000 or 10,000 Ganges, or a retinue equal to as little as the sands of one Ganges, half a Ganges, one-fourth of a Ganges, 
or as little as one part in a thousand, ten thousand, a million nayutas of Ganges, or those whose retinue was only one thousand, ten thousand million nayutas, or only a million, ten thousand, or only a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred, ten thousand, or just ten thousand, or only one thousand, one hundred, or ten, or who brought with them only five, four, three, two, or one disciple, or those who came alone, preferring to carry out solitary practices. Such were they then, immeasurable, boundless, beyond anything that can be known through calculation, simile, or parable. After these bodhisattvas had emerged from the earth, they each one proceeded to the wonderful tower of seven treasures suspended in the sky, where many treasures thus come one and Shakyamuni Buddha were. On reaching it, they turned to the two world-honored ones, bowed their heads, and made obeisance at their feet. They also all performed obeisance to the Buddhas seated on lion seats underneath the jeweled trees. Then they circled around to the right three times, pressed their palms together in a gesture of respect, utilizing the bodhisattva's various methods of praising to deliver praises, and then took up a position to one side, gazing up in joy at the two world-honored ones. While these bodhisattvas and mahasattvas who had emerged from the earth were employing the bodhisattva's various methods of praising to praise the Buddhas, an interval of fifty small kalpas passed by. At that time, Shakyamuni Buddha sat silent, and the four kinds of believers likewise all remained silent for fifty small kalpas. But because of the supernatural powers of the Buddha, it was made to seem to the members of the Great Assembly like only half a day. At that time, the four kinds of believers, also because of the supernatural powers of the Buddha, saw these bodhisattvas filling the sky over immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, and millions of lands. Among those bodhisattvas were four leaders, the first was called superior practices, the second was called boundless practices, the third was called pure practices, and the fourth was called firmly established practices. These four bodhisattvas were the foremost leaders and guiding teachers among all the group. In the presence of the great assembly, each one of these pressed his palm together, gazed at Shakyamuni Buddha, and inquired, World honored one, are your illnesses few? Are your worries few? Are your practices proceeding comfortably? Do those whom you propose to save readily receive instruction? Does the effort not cause the world-honored one to become weary and spent? At that time the four great bodhisattvas spoke in verse form, saying, Is the world-honored one comfortable, with few illnesses, few worries? In teaching and converting living beings, can you do so without fatigue and weariness? And do living beings receive instruction readily or not? Does it not cause the world-honored one to become weary and spent? At that time, in the midst of the great assembly of bodhisattvas, the world-honored one spoke these words, Just so, just so, good men. The thus-come one is well and happy, with few ills and few worries. The living beings are readily converted and saved, and I am not weary or spent. Why? Because for age after age in the past, the living beings have constantly received my instruction. And also, they have offered alms and paid reference to the Buddhas of the past, and have planted various good roots. So, when these living beings see me for the first time and listen to my preaching, they all immediately believe and accept it, entering into the wisdom of the thus-come-one, with the exception of those who earlier practiced and studied the lesser vehicle. And now I will make it possible for these persons to listen to this sutra and enter into the wisdom of the Buddha. At that time, the four great bodhisattvas spoke in verse form, saying, Excellent, excellent, great hero world-honored one, the living beings are readily converted and saved. They know how to inquire about the most profound wisdom of the Buddha, and having heard, they believe and understand it. 
we are accordingly overjoyed. At that time, the world-honored one praised the great bodhisattvas who led the group, saying, Excellent, excellent, good men. You know how to rejoice in your hearts for the thus-come-one. At that time, the Bodhisattva Maitreya and the multitude of Bodhisattvas equal in number to the sands of 8,000 Ganges, all thought to themselves, Never in the past have we seen or heard of such a great multitude of Bodhisattvas and Mahasattvas as these who have emerged from the earth, and now stand before the world-honored one, pressing their palms together, offering alms, and inquiring about the thus-come-one. At that time, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Maitreya, knowing the thought that was in the minds of the bodhisattvas as numerous as the sands of 8,000 Ganges, and wishing also to resolve his own doubts, pressed his palm together, turned to the Buddha, and made this inquiry in verse form. Immeasurable thousands, ten thousands, millions, a great host of bodhisattvas, such as was never seen in the past, I beg the most honored of two-legged beings to explain where they have come from, what causes and conditions bring them together. Huge in body, with great transcendental powers, unfathomable in wisdom, firm in their intent and thought, with the power of great perseverance, the kind living beings delight to see. Where have they come from? Each one of these bodhisattvas brings with him a retinue immeasurable in number, like the sands of the Ganges. Some of these great bodhisattvas bring numbers equal to 60,000 Ganges sands, and this great multitude, with a single mind, seek the Buddha way. These great teachers, equal in number to 60,000 Ganges sands, together come to offer alms to the Buddha and to guard and uphold this sutra. More numerous are those with followers like the sands of 50,000 Ganges, those with followers like the sands of 40,000, 30,000, 20,000, 10,000, 1,000, 100, or the sands of a single Ganges, half a Ganges, one-third, one-fourth, or only one part in a million ten thousand, those with 1,000, 10,000 Nayutas, 10,000 a million disciples, or half a million, they are more numerous still. Those with a million or 10,000 followers, a thousand or a hundred, fifty or ten, three, two or one, or those who come alone without followers, delighting in solitude, all coming to where the Buddha is, they are even more numerous than those described above. If one should try to use an abacus to calculate the number of this great multitude, though he spent as many kalpas as Ganges sands, he could never know the full sum. This host of bodhisattvas, with their great dignity, virtue, and diligence. Who preached the law for them? Who taught and converted them and brought them to this? Under whom did they first set their minds on enlightenment? What Buddha's law do they praise and proclaim? What sutra do they embrace and carry out? What Buddha way do they practice? These bodhisattvas possess transcendental powers and the power of great wisdom. The earth in four directions trembles and splits, and they all emerge out of it. World-honored one, from times past, I have seen nothing like this. I beg you to tell me where they come from, the name of the land. I have constantly journeyed from land to land, but never have I seen such a thing. In this whole multitude, there is not one person that I know. Suddenly, they have come up from the earth. I beg you to explain the cause. The members of this great assembly now, the immeasurable hundreds, thousands, millions of bodhisattvas, all want to know these things. Regarding the causes that govern the beginning and end of this multitude of bodhisattvas, possessor of immeasurable virtue, world-honored one, we beg you to dispel the doubts of the assembly. At that time, the Buddhas who were emanations of Shakyamuni Buddha and had arrived from immeasurable thousands, ten thousands, millions of lands in other directions were seated cross-legged on lion's seats under the jeweled trees in the eight directions. 
The attendants of these Buddhas all saw the great multitude of bodhisattvas who had emerged from the earth in the four directions of the thousand millionfold world and were suspended in the air. And each one said to his respective Buddha, World honored one, this great multitude of immeasurable, boundless asamkhyas of bodhisattvas, where did they come from? At that time, each of the Buddhas spoke to his attendants, saying, Good men, wait a moment. There is a bodhisattva and mahasattva named Maitreya who has received a prophecy from Shakyamuni Buddha that he will be the next hereafter to become a Buddha. He has already inquired about this matter, and the Buddha is now about to answer him. You should take this opportunity to listen to what he says. At that time, Shakyamuni Buddha said to the Bodhisattva Maitreya, Excellent, excellent, Ajita, that you should question the Buddha about this great affair. All of you, with a single mind, should don the armor of diligence and determine to be firm in intent. The thus come one wishes now to summon forth and declare the wisdom of the Buddhas, the freely exercised transcendental power of the Buddhas, the power of the Buddhas that has the lion's ferocity, the fierce and greatly forceful power of the Buddhas. At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, Be diligent and of a single mind, for I wish to explain this affair. Have no doubts or regrets. The Buddha wisdom is hard to fathom. Now you must put forth the power of faith, abiding in patience and goodness. A law which in the past was never heard, you will now be able to hear. Now I will bring you ease and consolation. Do not harbor doubts or fears. The Buddha has nothing but truthful words. His wisdom cannot be measured. This foremost law that he has gained is very profound, incapable of analysis. He will now expound it. You must listen with a single mind. At that time, the world-honored one, having spoken these verses, said to the Bodhisattva Maitreya, With regard to this great multitude, I now say this to you, Ajita, these Bodhisattvas and Mahasattvas, who in immeasurable and countless asamkhyas have emerged from the earth, and whom you have never seen before in the past, when I had attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi in this Saha world, I converted and guided these Bodhisattvas, trained their minds, and caused them to develop a longing for the way. These bodhisattvas have all been dwelling in the world of empty space underneath the Saha world. They read, recite, understand the various scriptures, ponder them, make distinctions, and keep them correctly in mind. Ajita, these good men take no delight in being in the assembly and indulging in much talk. Their delight is constantly to be in a quiet place, exerting themselves diligently and never resting. Nor do they linger among human or heavenly beings, but constantly delight in profound wisdom, being free from all hindrances. And they constantly delight in the law of the Buddhas, diligently and with a single mind pursuing unsurpassed wisdom. At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, Ajita, you should understand this. The great bodhisattvas, for countless kalpas, have practiced the Buddha wisdom. All have been converted by me. I caused them to set their minds on the great way. These are my sons. They dwell in this world constantly carrying out the dutta practices, preferring a quiet place, rejecting the fret and confusion of the great assembly, taking no delight in much talk. In this manner, these sons study and practice my way and law, and in order that day and night, with constant diligence, they may seek the Buddha way in the Saha world, they dwell in the empty space in its lower part. Firm in the power of will and concentration, with constant diligence seeking wisdom, they expound various wonderful doctrines, and their minds are without fear. 
When I was in the city of Gaia, seated beneath the Bodhi tree, I attained the highest, the correct enlightenment, and turned the wheel of the unsurpassed law. Therefore, I taught and converted them, caused them for the first time to set their minds on the way. Now all of them dwell in the stage of no regression, and all in time will be able to become Buddhas. What I speak now are true words. With a single mind, you must believe them. Ever since the long, distant past, I have been teaching and converting this multitude. At that time, the Bodhisattva and Mahasattva Maitreya, as well as the countless other Bodhisattvas, found doubts and perplexities arising in their minds. They were puzzled at this thing that had never happened before, and thought to themselves, how could the world-honored one, in such a short space of time, have taught and converted an immeasurable, boundless Asamkhya number of great Bodhisattvas of this sort, and enabled them to dwell in Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? Thereupon Maitreya said to the Buddha, World-honored one, when the thus-come one was a crown prince, you left the palace of the Shakyas and sat in the place of practice not far from the city of Gaya, and there attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Barely forty years or more have passed since then. World-honored one, how in that short time could you have accomplished so much work as a Buddha? Was it through the authoritative powers of the Buddha, or through the blessings of the Buddha, that you were able to teach and convert such an immeasurable number of great bodhisattvas and enable them to achieve Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi? World-honored one, a multitude of great bodhisattvas such as this, a person might spend a thousand, ten thousand, a million kalpas counting them and never be able to reach the end or discover the limit. Since the far distant past, in the dwelling place of immeasurable, boundless numbers of Buddhas, they must have planted good roots, carried out the Bodhisattva way, and engaged constantly in Brahma practices. World-honored one, it is hard for the world to believe such a thing. Suppose, for example, that a young man of twenty-five, with ruddy complexion and hair still black, should point to someone who was a hundred years old and say, This is my son, or that the hundred-year-old man should point to the youth and say, This is my father who sired and raised me. This would be hard to believe, and so too is what the Buddha says. It has in fact not been long since you attained the way, but this great multitude of bodhisattvas have already, for immeasurable thousands, ten thousands, millions of kalpas, applied themselves diligently and earnestly for the sake of the Buddha way. They have learned to enter into, emerge from, and dwell in immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of samadhis, have acquired great transcendental powers, have over a long period carried out Brahma practices, and have been able step by step to practice various good doctrines, becoming skilled in questions and answers, a treasure among persons, something seldom known in all the worlds. And today, world-honored one, you tell us that, in the time since you attained the Buddha way, you have caused these persons for the first time to aspire to enlightenment, have taught, converted, and led them, and directed them toward Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. World-honored one, it is not long since you attained Buddhahood, and yet you have been able to carry out this great meritorious undertaking. We ourselves have faith in the Buddha, believing that he preaches in accordance with what is appropriate, that the words spoken by the Buddha are never false, and that the Buddha's knowledge is in all cases penetrating and comprehensive. Nevertheless, in the period after the Buddha has entered extinction, if bodhisattvas who have just begun to aspire to enlightenment should hear these words, they will perhaps not believe or accept them, but will be led to commit the crime of rejecting the law. Therefore, world-honored one, we beg you to explain so we may put aside our doubts, and so that, in future ages, when good men hear of this matter, 
they will not entertain doubts. At that time, the Bodhisattva, Maitreya, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, In the past, the Buddha departed from the Shakya clan, left his household, and near Gaya, sat under the Bodhi tree. Little time has passed since then, yet these sons of the Buddha are immeasurable in number. Already for a long time they have practiced the Buddha way, dwelling in transcendental powers and the power of wisdom, skillfully learning the Bodhisattva way, unsoiled by worldly things, like the lotus flower in the water. Emerging from the earth, all display a reverent and respectful mind, standing in the presence of the world-honored one. This is difficult to fathom. How can one believe it? The Buddha attained the way very recently, yet those he has helped to gain success are so many. We beg you to dispel the doubts of the assembly and to make distinctions and explain the truth of the matter. It is as though a young man, just turned 25, were to point to a hundred-year-old man with gray hair and wrinkled face and say, I sired him, and the old man were to say, This is my father. The father youthful, the son old. No one in the world could believe this. World-honored one, your case is similar. Only very recently have you attained the way. These bodhisattvas are firm in will, in no way timid or immature. For immeasurable kalpas they have been practicing the bodhisattva way. They are clever at difficult questions and answers. Their minds know no fear. They have firmly cultivated a persevering mind, upright in dignity and virtue. They are praised by the Buddhas of the Ten Directions as able and adept at preaching distinctions. They have no wish to remain among the crowd, but constantly favor a state of meditation, and in order to seek the Buddha way, they have been dwelling in the space under the earth. This we have heard from the Buddha and have no doubts in the matter. But for the sake of future ages, we beg the Buddha to explain and bring about understanding. If, with regard to this sutra, one should harbor doubt and fail to believe, he will fall at once into the evil paths. So we beg you now to explain. These immeasurable bodhisattvas, how in such a short time did you teach them, cause them to have aspiring minds, and to dwell in the stage of no regression? At that time, the Buddha spoke to the bodhisattvas and all the great assembly. Good men, you must believe and understand the truthful words of the thus come one. And again he said to the great assembly, you must believe and understand the truthful words of the thus come one. And once more he said to the great assembly, you must believe and understand the truthful words of the thus come one. At that time, the bodhisattvas and the great assembly, with Maitreya as their leader, pressed their palms together and addressed the Buddha, saying, World-honored one, we beg you to explain. We will believe and accept the Buddha's words. They spoke in this manner three times, and then said once more, We beg you to explain it. We will believe and accept the Buddha's words. At that time, the world-honored one, seeing that the bodhisattvas repeated their request three times and more, spoke to them, saying, You must listen carefully and hear of the thus-come-one's secret and his transcendental powers. In all the worlds, the heavenly and human beings and asuras all believe that the present Shakyamuni Buddha, after leaving the palace of the Shakyas, seated himself in the place of practice not far from the city of Gaya, and there attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. But good men, it has been immeasurable, boundless hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of nayutas of kalpas, since I, in fact, attained Buddhahood. Suppose a person were to take five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million nayuta asamkya, 
thousand million fold worlds and grind them into dust. Then, moving eastward, each time he passes, five hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million Nayuta Asamkya worlds, he drops a single particle of dust. He continues eastward in this way until he has finished dropping all the particles. Good men, what is your opinion? Can the total number of all of these worlds be imagined or calculated? The Bodhisattva Maitreya and the others said to the Buddha, World Honored One, These worlds are immeasurable, boundless, one cannot calculate their number, nor does the mind have the power to encompass them. Even all the voice hearers and Prachekabuddhas, with their wisdom free of outflows, could not imagine or understand how many there are. Although we abide in the stage of Avivartika, we cannot comprehend such a matter. World-honored one, these worlds are immeasurable and boundless. At that time, the Buddha said to the multitude of great bodhisattvas, Good men, now I will state this to you clearly. Suppose all these worlds, whether they received a particle of dust or not, are once more reduced to dust. Let one particle represent one kalpa. The time that has passed since I attained Buddhahood surpasses this by a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a million Nayuta Asamkya Kalpas. Ever since then, I have been constantly in this Saha world, preaching the law, teaching and converting. And elsewhere I have led and benefited living beings in hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of Nayutas and Asamkyas of lands. Good men, during that time I have spoken about the Buddha burning torch and others and described how they entered Nirvana. All this I employed as an expedient means to make distinctions. Good men, if there are living beings who come to me, I employ my Buddha eye to observe their faith and see if their other faculties are keen or dull. And then, depending upon how receptive they are to salvation, I appear in different places and preach to them under different names and describe the length of time during which my teachings will be effective. Sometimes, when I make my appearance, I say that I am about to enter nirvana and also employ different expedient means to preach the subtle and wonderful law, thus causing living beings to awaken joyful minds. Good men, the thus come one observes how among living beings there are those who delight in a little law, meager in virtue and heavy with defilement. For such persons I describe how, in my youth, I left my household and attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. But in truth, the time since I attained Buddhahood is extremely long, as I have told you. It is simply that I use this expedient means to teach and convert living beings and cause them to enter the Buddha way. That is why I speak in this manner. Good men, the scriptures expounded by the thus come one are all for the purpose of saving and emancipating living beings. Sometimes I speak of myself, sometimes of others. Sometimes I present myself, sometimes others. Sometimes I show my own actions, sometimes those of others. All that I preach is true and not false. Why do I do this? The thus come one perceives the true aspect of the threefold world exactly as it is. There is no ebb or flow of birth and death, and there is no existing in this world and later entering extinction. It is neither substantial nor empty, neither consistent nor diverse, nor is it what those who dwell in the threefold world perceive it to be. All such things the thus come one sees clearly and without error. Because living beings have different natures, different desires, different actions, and different ways of thinking and making distinctions, and because I want to enable them to put down good roots, I employ a variety of causes and conditions, similes, parables, and phrases, and preach different doctrines. This, the Buddha's work, I have never for a moment neglected. Thus, since I attained Buddhahood, an extremely long period of time has passed. 
My lifespan is an immeasurable number of Asankhya Kalpas, and during that time I have constantly abided here without ever entering extinction. Good men, originally I practiced the Bodhisattva way, and the lifespan that I acquired then has yet to come to an end, but will last twice the number of years that have already passed. Now, however, although in fact I do not actually enter extinction, I announce that I am going to adopt the course of extinction. This is an expedient means which the thus-come-one uses to teach and convert living beings. Why do I do this? Because if the Buddha remains in the world for a long time, those persons with shallow virtue will fail to plant good roots, but living in poverty and lowliness will become attached to the five desires and be caught in the net of deluded thoughts and imaginings. If they see that the thus-come-one is constantly in the world and never enters extinction, they will grow arrogant and selfish or become discouraged and neglectful. They will fail to realize how difficult it is to encounter the Buddha and will not approach him with respectful and reverent mind. Therefore, as an expedient means, the thus-come-one says, Monks, you should know that it is a rare thing to live at a time when one of the Buddhas appears in the world. Why does he do this? Because persons of shallow virtue may pass immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of kalpas, with some of them chancing to see a Buddha and others never seeing one at all. For this reason I say to them, Monks, the thus-come-one is hard to get to see. When living beings hear these words, they are certain to realize how difficult it is to encounter the Buddha. In their minds they will harbor a longing and will thirst to gaze upon the Buddha, and then they will work to plant good roots. Therefore the thus-come-one, though in truth he does not enter extinction, speaks of passing into extinction. Good men, the Buddhas and thus-come-ones all preach a law such as this. They act in order to save living beings, so what they do is true and not false. Suppose, for example, that there is a skilled physician who is wise and understanding and knows how to compound medicines to effectively cure all kinds of diseases. He has many sons, perhaps ten, twenty, or even a hundred. He goes off to some other land far away to see about a certain affair. After he has gone, the children drink some kind of poison that makes them distraught with pain and they fall writhing to the ground. At that time the father returns to his home and finds that his children have drunk poison. Some are completely out of their minds, while others are not. Seeing their father from far off, all are overjoyed and kneel down and entreat him, saying, How fine that you have returned safely. We were stupid and by mistake drank some poison. We beg you to cure us and let us live out our lives. The father, seeing his children suffering like this, follows various prescriptions, gathering fine medicinal herbs that meet all the requirements of color, fragrance, and flavor. He grinds, sifts, and mixes them together. Giving a dose to his children, he tells them, This is a highly effective medicine, meeting all the requirements of color, fragrance, and flavor. Take it, and you will be quickly relieved of your sufferings, and will be free of all illness. Those children who have not lost their senses can see that this is good medicine, outstanding in both color and fragrance, so they take it immediately and are completely cured of their sickness. Those who are out of their minds are equally delighted to see their father return and beg him to cure their sickness, but when they are given the medicine they refuse to take it. Why? Because the poison has penetrated deeply and their minds no longer function as before, so although the medicine is of excellent color and fragrance, they do not perceive it as good. The father thinks to himself, My poor children, because of the poison in them, their minds are completely befuddled. Although they are happy to see me and ask me to cure them, they refuse to take this excellent medicine. 
I must now resort to some expedient means to induce them to take the medicine. So he says to them, You should know that I am now old and worn out, and the time of my death has come. I will leave this good medicine here. You should take it and not worry that it will not cure you. Having given these instructions, he then goes off to another land, where he sends a messenger home to announce, Your father is dead. At that time, the children, hearing that their father has deserted them and died, are filled with great grief and consternation, and think to themselves, If our father were alive, he would have pity on us and see that we are protected. But now he has abandoned us and died in some other country far away. We are shelterless orphans with no one to rely on. Constantly harboring such feelings of grief, they at last come to their senses and realize that the medicine is in fact excellent in color and fragrance and flavor, and so they take it and are healed of all the effects of the poison. The father, hearing that his children are all cured, immediately returns home and appears to them all once more. Good men, what is your opinion? Can anyone say that this skilled physician is guilty of lying? No, world-honored one. The Buddha said, it is the same with me. It has been immeasurable, boundless hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of Nayuta and Asamkhya Kalpas since I attained Buddhahood. But for the sake of living beings, I employ the power of expedient means and say that I am about to pass into extinction. In view of the circumstances, however, no one can say that I have been guilty of lies or falsehoods. At that time, the world-honored one, wishing to state his meaning once more, spoke in verse form, saying, since I attained Buddhahood, the number of kalpas that have passed is an immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions, trillions, asamkhyas. Constantly I have preached the law, teaching, converting, countless millions of living beings, causing them to enter the Buddha way. All this for immeasurable kalpas. In order to save living beings, as an expedient means, I appear to enter nirvana, but in truth I do not pass into extinction. I am always here, preaching the law. I am always here, but through my transcendental powers, I make it so that living beings in their befuddlement do not see me even when close by. When the multitude see that I have passed into extinction, far and wide they offer alms to my relics. All harbor thoughts of yearning, and in their minds thirst to gaze at me. When living beings have become truly faithful, honest and upright, gentle and intent, single-mindedly desiring to see the Buddha, not hesitating even if it cost them their lives. Then I and the assembly of monks appear together on Holy Eagle Peak. At that time I tell the living beings that I am always here, never entering extinction, but that because of the power of an expedient means at times I appear to be extinct, at other times not, and that if there are living beings in other lands who are reverent and sincere in their wish to believe, then among them too I will preach the unsurpassed law. But you have not heard of this, so you suppose that I enter extinction. When I look at living beings, I see them drowned in a sea of suffering. Therefore, I do not show myself, causing them to thirst for me. Then, when their minds are filled with yearning, at last I appear and preach the law for them. Such are my transcendental powers. For Asamkhya Kalpas, constantly I have dwelled on Holy Eagle Peak and in various other places. When living beings witness the end of a kalpa, and all is consumed in a great fire, this, my land, remains safe and tranquil, constantly filled with heavenly and human beings. The halls and pavilions in its gardens and groves are adorned with various kinds of gems. Jeweled trees abound in flowers and fruit, where living beings enjoy themselves at ease. 
The gods strike heavenly drums, constantly making many kinds of music. Mandarava blossoms rain down, scattering over the Buddha and the great assembly. My pure land is not destroyed, yet the multitudes see it as consumed in fire, with anxiety, fear, and other sufferings filling it everywhere. These living beings, with their various offenses, through causes arising from their evil actions, spend asamkhya kalpas without hearing the name of the three treasures. But those who practice meritorious ways, who are gentle, peaceful, honest, and upright, all of them will see me here in person preaching the law. At times for this multitude, I describe the Buddha's lifespan as immeasurable, and to those who see the Buddha only after a long time, I explain how difficult it is to meet the Buddha. Such is the power of my wisdom that its sagacious beams shine without measure. This lifespan of countless kalpas I gained as the result of lengthy practice. You who are possessed of wisdom, entertain no doubts on this point. Cast them off, end them forever, for the Buddha's words are true, not false. He is like a skilled physician who uses an expedient means to cure his deranged sons. Though in fact alive, he gives out word he is dead, yet no one can say he speaks falsely. I am the father of this world, saving those who suffer and are afflicted. Because of the befuddlement of ordinary people, though I live, I give out word I have entered extinction. For if they see me constantly, arrogance and selfishness arise in their minds. Abandoning restraint, they give themselves up to the five desires, and fall into the evil paths of existence. Always I am aware of which living beings practice the way and which do not. And in response to their needs for salvation, I preach various doctrines for them. At all times I think to myself, how can I cause living beings to gain entry into the unsurpassed way and quickly acquire the body of a Buddha? So that was chapter 15 and 16 of the Lotus Sutra. Docs, what do you have to talk about today? lot. So, short version, I really liked chapter 15 and really disliked chapter 16. Tell us a little bit about why. So, with chapter 15, it's the core of this chapter is the imagery, this ridiculously large procession around the Buddha. So, to start with, I noted that we're talking about the Saha world in this. To get the scale right, uh, how does that transfer towards what we understand of the world. How big is this? It's all of it. We are currently in the Saha world. It's another name for the world of samsara, another name for the world of suffering. I've been asked before if it's the same as Jambudvipa, which is Shakyamuni's pure land, his Buddha realm. And it is and it isn't. Jambudvipa is the pure version of Shakyamuni's Pure Land, which is, I know it's a little bit circular, but Jambudvipa is like the ideal, and Saha is another name for just how everything is, the reality. So we could say Jambudvipa is, would be smaller because the Saha world would also include the, these portions which are impure still. So to get to the whole top level of what I'm liking. Chapter 15 has a lot of imagery and cool stuff just happening and going on, uh, demonstrations of the scale at which Buddhism is trying to operate. And also towards the end, it has Maitreya operating as an audience surrogate 
asking questions that I personally had as well. And showing, I think, a good way, a good demonstration of how to respectfully question a master. Because that is something that uh, I think a lot of religions have trouble with, is allowing, just even allowing one to question the source of information is often frowned upon. And here we have not just it happening, but it is also the next guy who is going to be in that spot doing it. So right, that ending establishes what I think is a really good precedent. What you're hitting on, the role of Maitreya in the Lotus Sutra, is something that has been studied and examined quite a bit in the scholarship about this text. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, I think, there are lots of places where Maitreya is the one who's asking the important questions that lead to the very important parts of the Buddha's preaching. It's usually his sort of asking and his egging on of the Buddha that causes him to give the the really important stuff. Whether we like it or not, the next chapter, chapter 16, is really the most important chapter of this portion of the text because of reasons we'll get to in a minute. But the fact that it's Maitreya in chapter one who says that he has forgotten what's happening when the Buddha is about to preach, whenever he starts to glow and meditate and stuff, and he's about to preach about skillful means, the fact that it's him that remembers that, or that he says that he doesn't remember, and the fact that it's him here asking, how could all of these people be your students from so long ago? You've only lived for several decades. People have argued sort of both ways. They've argued one way that Maitreya is sort of the prime audience of this sutra. I mean, we all are, obviously, but specifically, the most important member, the one who should be listening the most, is said to be Maitreya because he's going to be the next Buddha. He's going to be giving this exact same sutra in his lifetime whenever he comes down from Tushi to heaven and becomes the Buddha of the future. He's going to be giving this exact same Dharma word for word, so he has to be paying attention. He's still a Bodhisattva. He's not a fully realized Buddha yet, so he has to really be working hard as a disciple in order to digest what's going on here. And part of that, importantly, as you can see necessarily, it means that he has to be honest whenever he forgets stuff. He has to be honest whenever he doesn't understand something. He has to be honest whenever he has some sort of doubt or some sort of misunderstanding that could lead to greater and wider doubt and misunderstanding. His role here is to preserve the Dharma. And he's helping himself do that, but he's also helping us all do that. And so whenever he helps us all do that, that's where we get into the second argument about Maitreya, which is that he is faking it. He's doing all of this as a skillful means. He knows that if he does this, then it'll prompt the Buddha to preach these important doctrines, and it'll also read to us, the audience, the readers of the sutra, that he is being an audience stand-in. We'll see ourselves in him and our under- misunderstandings and our doubts and our perplexities will show up in him as well, and we will relate with the text better, and we'll relate with him better, and we'll relate with the doctrine that comes after a lot better because of him being in it and having that role to play. So, Either he's already completely, totally enlightened, and he's doing all of this as a skillful means for saving us, or 
he's studying really hard, working really hard, because he's going to be doing this very soon. And so I think that in either case, that makes Maitreya very, very important and very interesting. You don't often see disciples of the Buddha forgetting stuff and then asking about what they have forgotten. And you don't often see them having doubts that are voiced in such a fashion. They will ask questions about people elsewhere who might have doubts in the future or in the community, but they won't often talk about how they're worried essentially that this doctrine will not really be popular. This doctrine will be hard to understand. This will be that. And then asking the question accordingly, according to their own feelings about it. So it's a very personal kind of image of Maitreya. He's playing a very interesting role here. The way I would look at it is if Upaya is a real thing that an enlightened person is capable of, then it could just be both. I think it would be well within the means of such a figure to cause oneself to forget purposefully. That's something that's come up in fiction multiple times, and I see no reason you couldn't take that interpretation here. And also, it seems like a Buddhist interpretation. He is simultaneously enlightened and not in that case. You've hit on a really important point about skillful means, which is exactly that. You can appear in this world as a skillful means in such a fashion that you don't remember or you don't know what you're doing as you're doing it. It's a really interesting sort of detachment or like selective amnesia that you can achieve from your own enlightenment. You can arise in this world in a certain role that's unknown even to you and practice out the skillful means, not even knowing that you're doing it, consciously at least. You can perhaps reach enlightenment in this lifetime and figure out that you're doing it all as a skillful means through you know, attaining supreme knowledge of yourself through meditation, study, and practice. But in this case, it's entirely possible, you're right, that he is a fully realized Buddha and he's also actually forgetting this stuff because that's how his skillful means is being carried out. Anything else we should... We've kind of skipped around an order a little bit, uh, but since we're on the bit with Maitreya, is there anything else in there that we should talk about that I miss? No, no, that's okay. I'm sorry I kind of dragged us away from the imagery you were talking about to no. talking about Maitreya. Well, for what it's worth, I think the section with Maitreya is more doctrinally important, probably, because it, it's demonstrating a way to question the master, whereas what's coming before is mostly a display of the master's power. Now, it's a cool display. I really enjoyed reading it, and there's definitely imagery in there to pick apart, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of doctrinal angle to this portion that I could see. That's sort of why I wanted to read them both together, is I think that chapter 15 really sets up chapter 16. It doesn't really do a lot of heavy lifting on its own. It's really only important because of what's coming after. I want to talk about the imagery at length first, but I just wanted to make sure, it's like, while we're talking about doctrine, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't skipping something that I couldn't see. No, there is one point that I do have a question about, though. So, this is something that can't really be widely agreed upon in scholarship or in living actual Buddhism or in historical Buddhism either. But this is something that 
I always ask people whenever they read this part, why did the bodhisattvas come out of the earth? Why didn't they come from another realm? Why didn't they come down from heaven? Why, why didn't they just appear? Why didn't they come on foot and then rise up to where the audience is happening in the air above Rajagriha? I've always, always been sort of asking myself and others, why did they come out of the earth? Actually out of the ground, like a, a fissure opened up in the actual ground of Rajagriha, of, of Vulture's Peak, and like the actual bodhisattvas just came out. And of course, they're bodhisattvas, so they were like sparkly clean. You know, they didn't have any dirt or junk on them. They just emerged out of there on lotus flowers, just perfectly clean and ready to go, ready to hear this part of the sutra. Do you have any thoughts on why it might have been them coming out of the earth? That's an interesting question. Um, hmm. This never happens in another text, by the way. There's no other sutra we can look to with precedent that says that these characters, bodhisattvas or not, came out of the actual ground. Um, it's been a while since we've discussed it. Where did the, I forget his name, the previous Buddha emerge from in, earlier in the sutra? Yes, you're talking about the treasure tower of Prabhuta Ratna. Where did that come from? That one also came out of the earth. Okay, so there's so I was trying to remember that detail. So it could just be a matter of continuity. So Prabhuta Ratna is a skeleton for this thing. Like we're talking about like he is dead and like we are looking at his relics, right? That's right, because the treasure tower itself is a stupa. It's a reliquary tower. It's where you put the right. remains of somebody who's died. And so he's a skeleton, and you think that for continuity's sake, that these bodhisattvas are coming out of the earth, they might also be dead? Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Uh, and again, I was going to go for what a lot of times we have an idea of the underworld as a realm of the dead. And so if these are bodhisattvas that lived a whole long time ago and represent beings who have, who have reached enlightenment, part of that reaching enlightenment is death. So perhaps it's a matter of like these are pristine, but dead beings coming from an underworld. Like I don't know enough about what the afterlife beliefs of China at this time were, but perhaps like that's some kind of reach towards a tradition that already existed that preached that the dead lived under the earth, maybe? No, that's a really good point. The idea of there being dead spirits or the deceased in general, them being under the surface of the ground, that is something that's shared pretty much universally across human cultures. And I think that part of the reason why for that is that whenever something dies wherever it is, then over a long period of time, it does eventually get buried. Stuff sinks. Even if you don't bury it yourself, stuff sinks. And so you find, if you dig down far enough, you just find things that have been dead for increasingly long amounts of time. The further down you go, the longer the thing has been passed away. And I think that I'm kind of with you there. I think that the coming out of the ground has to do with the fact, one, that they were the Buddha's students eons ago, like a very, very, very long time ago. And so they're buried under there because that's where everything else from that many eons ago is. It's buried. It's sunken. And 
on the point of them being dead or dying or preserved dead or undead of some kind. I think that that's likely too. When we talked about Prabhupada Ratna, we never saw any textual evidence, any imagery in the text itself that said that he was a skeleton. But that was sort of assumed. We're sort of speculating that with you know, a lot of confidence because it's a reliquary tower. And at the time where this was written, only dead people were in those, right? For example, in the current day and age, if we said in a text, and then somebody came out of a grave and opened up the lid of a coffin and started talking, the assumption we would have in our heads reading that is that that person in that coffin is dead. They're a skeleton. Yeah. And and so naturally, we're looking back with the same assumption here. And we think that we're pretty much right on that. And a lot of imagery about this scene, when they illustrate the Lotus Sutra throughout history, it has that same imagery. It has him as being either completely a skeleton or being a well-preserved corpse, like a very well-preserved mummy. And so that's likely the case. These bodhisattvas are not often depicted as being mummies or being skeletons, but the assumption is that they are very long-lived and they're perhaps in eternal meditation. So we remember from the text that their purpose is to come up and listen to what's coming, listen to chapter 16, and help the Buddha preach it. The idea might be that they didn't ever actually die, so to speak. They went into very, very deep samadhi. This is something that has a lot of precedence in Buddhism. For example, the founder of Shingon Buddhism, Kukai, he's actually not regarded as being dead. He's actually just in what's called eternal meditation. So you can go to uh, Mount Koya in Japan, and you actually see that they feed him twice a day, and they change his clothes twice a day, and things like that. There's a very ceremonious ritual that takes place where they make him food, and they take it down to the cemetery at Koyasan, or Mount Koya, where he's supposedly still meditating. And so this could be what's going on with these bodhisattvas. They could be in eternal meditation until such time as it's time to help the Buddha preach chapter 16. And so I'm kind of with you there. I think that it has to do with them being from the distant past, and also it has to do with their eternal meditation slash their mummification. And even if they were just meditating eternally, that would presume that they're not moving, which means they would get buried. So even if they are supposed to be alive, if they've just been sitting there not doing anything for eons, they would be buried as well. So there's why they come from the earth, I would be my guess at least, my speculation. So when I was first reading through this and got to where they start listing off their numbers, I had to actually stop and step away from this for a minute because I was trying to comprehend these numbers. And um, that's an error for a lot of reasons. For one, that's probably not what the Buddha would want. We're not supposed to be using just that kind of discursive reasoning. And also because the mind can't do that. When I came back to this and started reading it the second time, there's a concept in computer science called Big O Notation. It's basically a way of measuring orders of magnitude. And I kind of did something similar trying to understand what was going on here. So instead of seeing 
you know, number of sands equal to the Ganges is like infinity. So it's like the number of sands of the Ganges, and then they also have a retinue of the number of sands of the Ganges. It's like, okay, infinity squared. Simplify the numbers in that way. And it's like, I'm really glad I'm not having to try to memorize this because this looks like something that is designed to trip up memory. It absolutely is. People do memorize it and they do recite it according to memory and they can get through this section, but it definitely is fully intended to break the mind. If you tried to count, as it says in the text, it would take as many Kalpas as there are sands in the Ganges before you would even make a dent in the number. And so this sutra is always trying to demonstrate the scale at which this doctrine, which Buddhism itself is operating, and it's even more so intensely done here in this particular part. It will try at every chance to demonstrate a giant, huge number that's bigger than anything that's ever been imagined and tell you, you know, that's not even like a fraction of how many were there, you know? And I think that that's really cool. I think it's trying to demonstrate the dramatic nature of the imagery that we just got in chapter 15. I think that it's trying to really impress upon the reader how seriously important and how severe the scene is. But at the same time, it's tough. It's tough reading. It's tough understanding. And I think that when it comes to recitation, people don't often fully understand it. It's true that in Buddhism, there is a great deal of reciting that goes on that doesn't have any accompanying comprehension of meaning, especially in the case of the Lotus Sutra, because it's so complicated. The translations that we have in, into English, they are aimed at making it like accessible with sentence structures and with syntax and with additions. And my professor used to call this the ketchup on the fries to make it something we can actually read and understand. But the classical Chinese and the Sanskrit, it's very, very, very complicated, very hard to read, very, very dense with meaning in a way that simply languages that have an alphabet solely based on sound rather than meaning can ever be. Because you'll remember that Chinese in particular, the characters in Chinese contain sound and meaning, but the letters in English only contain sound. There's no specific meaning in the letter A as opposed to any other sound A. And so that's kind of a way that we can get around that problem of densely packed meaning into our language. Chinese is incredibly, incredibly dense with meaning, classical Chinese even more so. And then Sanskrit, of course, is very dense as well. So this is sort of one of the more difficult and complicated parts of the text. And it's something that does not always even get fully comprehended by the professional reciter of the text. Yeah, I remember the first time I was reading through it and it mentioned how many kalpas and it, it took. And I stopped and went, wait a minute, a kalpa is a really long time. I don't didn't remember how much, but I was like, that's a long time. And they said it took a whole bunch of them. So how long did this take? And I got, after doing the math, I got something like 70 billion years. And then I got to the next paragraph and it said, and then the Buddha made it seem like just half an afternoon using his powers. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and it's often thought that this is actually still happening. So especially in Nichiren Buddhism, because of this long timescale, 
they often think for well for that time scale and for also a few other reasons they often think that the buddha is still preaching the lotus sutra on continuous loop above vulture's peak and that if you go there and you have truly taken faith in the lotus sutra and you've done the five actions of the lotus sutra you know read recite expound etc then you'll actually see him up there with his audience and see him in whichever part that he's gotten to and so it's thought of that this is kind of an ongoing constant thing that's happening that's a cool idea and like when i was reading this i was thinking like hmm if you were to say rearrange the idea of a bodhisattva and their attendants as like a body and then migrant organisms on a body you could kind of get in a similar scale of number of beings involved but if you take the scale and make it cosmic this is a procession that is rotating around a central point that's a spiral galaxy so like i could easily see somebody trying to syncretize this stuff or modernize it recasting these motions as like i said either something that is encompassing microorganisms or something that is on a galactic scale and the numbers being thrown out here do kind of hold up to the idea of a galactic scale absolutely and well one reason why a lot of people think about those things whenever they read these scales is because in all of human history, we have never, ever seen 10 billion people in one place. We've never seen 8 billion people in one place. They're spread out over the entire globe as we speak. However, in this situation, there are 100 billion people walking around one person in one place. And that's not something that the brain can even comprehend. We don't have even a referent in the most distant past of human history for something like that. And so it's a very impossible scale. It's meant to be larger than real life ever was and possibly even larger than real life ever could be. Yeah, a lot of cool stuff in this imagery. The procession being described here, like it's vague enough that I I can't make an actual picture of it, but there's enough detail that I can like make a picture of the picture sort of deal. And that was just fun to do. And then, like I said before, the chapter concludes with Maitreya asking his question and establishing a precedent that I think is really healthy in any tradition, but especially in a religion. And then we get to chapter 16 and it all comes crashing down. (laughs) So I really don't like chapter 16 for three reasons. First off, it explicitly and directly calls the people that came before in other traditions less spiritually advanced, less enlightened, lesser. It also basically undoes the Parinibbana Sutta, and it does so for the purpose of allowing the Buddha to live forever. Every step of that process sucks. It's such an inversion of What I think is one of the most important things the Buddha does. The Buddha reaches enlightenment and then dies, being two of the exclamation points on his life. This is reversing that exclamation point completely. 
And it's reversing an exclamation point that's making death easier, making death more approachable and more acceptable. That's bad. In the context of the sutra, this is the Buddha saying all of this. And chapter 15 just happened. If I had just seen the events of chapter 15, I would be listening to this guy accepting what he's saying. Because he just did all that. Clearly he knows something I don't. I should be listening to him. But here in the real world, in the context that I'm currently existing in, chances are this was written by a person. and. I think that person fundamentally misunderstands some very important things that were established in sutras that were written earlier. Yeah, so you're specifically referring to the fact that the Buddha says, I actually have been alive for many eons, and I will continue to be alive for many eons. And my arising in the world as a prince and leaving the palace and reaching enlightenment under the Bodhi tree and my eventual death, these are all a skillful means to encourage people and keep them on their toes and keep them studying the Dharma and keep them following the Dharma and not becoming complacent and also believing in and experiencing skillful means as a reality of enlightened beings and also mentioning the fact that all other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are manifestations of me, the primordial Buddha. This is specifically the part that kind of rubs you the wrong way, right? Because it goes back on stuff that's been said before. It goes back on stuff that was said before, and I think stuff that was specifically healthy and like useful and like actually wise ideas. It's okay to die. And here is a writer that seems desperate, to bring the Buddha back to life. And that feels deeply misguided to me. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so I'll try to address some of those points in the context of the sutra and also in the context of greater Buddhism at large, and then offer some of my own commentary on it as well. So to begin with, this sutra is attempting to bring under its purview, under the umbrella of its teaching, all other teachings that have ever occurred in Buddhism. And it's trying to add the topmost possible layer of complexity and subtlety and all of that stuff that it possibly can on the very top. And the method by which it does this textually has kind of been interpreted for the most part in Western scholarship to be making the Buddha be non-different from the Dharma. So the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings were always regarded to be something different. The Buddha is a human being. He's a great human being. He's got these really cool physical marks, and he's very enlightened, and he has all this interesting stuff to say, but he is a two-legged being. We often see him in the Pali Canon regarded as foremost or the best among the two-legged beings, but he's a two-legged being nonetheless. So he's a person, and then he gives teachings. He gives the Dharma. And so it's often thought of in early Buddhism that the Buddha was seen as like a father figure sort of person. He was giving all of us the teaching and providing it for us, and we look to him as the source of it. But the Buddha himself rejected that and said, I'm not the source of these teachings. I'm conveying things that are already out there. I'm conveying things that are real. I'm not making anything up. 
I'm not coming up with this myself. I'm not creating this. This is like the properties of reality all around us. And if you just meditate enough, then you'll see that yourself. And you'll see that it's not my Dharma. It's just the capital D Dharma. And so that kind of came to be widely agreed upon for the most part. But then because the Buddha was enlightened and because he did eventually die, then the idea was like, okay, well, we have lost this father figure, even though he didn't like to be called that, even though he didn't want to be kind of worshipped in that regard or venerated in that regard. We have this father figure that's now gone. And whether he's conveying or making it up, either way, he's gone. And that process has stopped. And so we need to find an answer to where to look to now that he's gone. And of course, all that we have left of him is his dharma, the, the teachings that he gave, whether he conveyed them or made them up himself. And this sort of point is even alluded to in the Parinibbana Sutta. On the last couple days of his life, the Buddha says, the Dharma will guide you from now on. Always look to the Dharma. That is me. Wherever there is the Dharma, there is me. And that seems to us as scholars sort of historically to be a reference to the fact that the Buddha has already died by the time this is being written, and they are the authors are adding that in themselves. Right, They're trying to preserve the Dharma and encourage others to preserve the Dharma because that's all that there is and because that's how we're going to make sense of the absence of Shakyamuni himself. Now that he's gone, that's what we have. And so a lot of texts are authored around the turn of BCE to CE, the Common Era, and they will kind of expand upon this concept of the Buddha living on through the Dharma and that's kind of where we get this Lotus Sutra text and this argument of the immeasurable lifespan of the Buddha. The interpretation of Dharma, capital D Dharma, is that it is a universal property of reality and that it is the same regardless of how reality presents itself, regardless of who is alive or who is not alive to give it. And it is not affected by laws like impermanence, emptiness, and dukkha. So, it can be eternal. This is the one thing that can truly be eternal in Buddhism. The Dharma itself, the capital D Dharma, is not impermanent. Only small d dharmas, little constituent pieces of reality, are impermanent. And so because of that, it can be forever. However, there still needed to be, according to scholarly views, a referent for this Dharma that could be like characterized, that could be like personified in some way. And so that kind of ties us into this chapter 16 where the Dharma is being talked about, but it's being referred to as the Buddha. So we have this breakdown of the distinction between the two that kind of kind of goes in as an assumption of the text before we even get into it. And then now that we're into it, we can read the authors saying the Buddha has an immeasurable lifespan and actually hear them say the Dharma has an immeasurable lifespan. However, in this text, they've taken that to the extreme length, extreme peripheries of the possibility of the logic of that argument. The logic of the breakdown of the distinction between the Buddha and the Dharma has been pushed to its limits almost and even beyond. And so that's where this primordial Buddha himself comes from. The idea is if the Buddha and the Dharma are the same, if they are not different, if they are truly inseparable, and they're truly 
I don't know how to say it in any other way, truly indistinct, then there is no Dharma that is no no capital D Dharma that is born and dies. That all is just a manifestation of capital D Dharma. And so you're starting to see, okay, well, the Buddha is capital D Dharma. The Buddha doesn't become born in this life and then die. He actually has an immeasurable lifespan with manifestations. And so that's the Lotus Sutra's argument for why this teaching kind of supersedes all other teachings that have preceded it, is that it's not saying those teachings are wrong. It's saying that those teachings are just lesser, smaller scale interpretations of what they regard as being the same thing. And many people in history and many people in the scholarship believe it whenever the sutra says that. But I can totally understand seeing that and bouncing off of it entirely and being like, no, that is not how that works. You can't just do that. Clearly, authors are people and have agendas, and this can't be the way that you say it is, because that's basically flipping up everything we've done so far on its head, right? I don't think that we would be reading it if those people who disagreed with the text won out, won the argument 2,000 years ago, because then this text wouldn't have been copied and recited and spread all over East Asia and the world. This text would be minor and sort of be left behind, right? And so I think that the people who believed the text when they read it were the larger group and the more powerful group, and that's sort of why we have it. But at the same time, it's very controversial. As I've said before, there are certain schools of Theravada and early Mahayana Buddhism that regard this text as being completely, completely heretical and apocryphal. And I can see why. Like, this, not only is this turning things on its head, but it's being very, it's being rude about it as well. It's explicitly calling the figures and followers of the earlier traditions less spiritually advanced. And I question the motive of bringing all of the teachings under this one. Also, that's not a good desire, I think. Like, that sounds like subjugation. Like, semantic subjugation, I guess. And I'm always going to be leery of that. Like, that's... We're talking about doctrines, we're not talking about people, so it's not, you know, the same thing. But also, like, outside of this show, I do a lot of writing and narrative design stuff. And at this point, I can't stop trying to pick those ideas out of stuff I read. I do the same thing with game design, and I don't play video games anymore, I dissect them. And it's kind of the same with stories. So I'm instinctually trying to dissect the author's motives here. And they're not good. And the way that they're coming off in my head. Like, this sutra calls itself the king of all sutras. It reverses other sutras. It denigrates doctrines that came before it. In this sutra, the Buddha is saying... You know, I say one thing to these people, but they're dumb, and so here's the real thing that I'm telling you. When it's the Buddha doing that, like, he's enlightened, he gets to do that, and cool, I will go along with it. If it's a person, if it's an author doing that, that author does not have good intentions at heart, I think. I have never met anybody 
who has talked to me like that, that has also not been trying to sell me something or scam me. So I have a hard time with this author's motivations in a way that, like, I don't know how to approach it here because I also don't usually deal with explicitly religious subjects. And so this is a spot where I don't know the right way to do this analysis. Well, you're coming up with something that's very, very relevant to the study of religion and the study of people who are religious, right? So it's natural for us to, in any context, to read this text, which says it's got it all figured out, and to be suspicious of that claim. However, we should also remember that other Mahayana texts also say they all have it figured out, and you know we are suspicious when they do that as well. And we should also note too in history that most of the major religions that we practice to this day also claim to have everything all figured out. As suspicious as we are of those claims that they really have brought everything under their purview, those things are still very successful and they're still very popular and they're still kind of believed and preserved and very prolific among human beings. And so on the one hand, yeah, it is very suspicious and it is very agenda-driven and it does really look down upon those people who are still doing what the Buddha said to do initially. But at the same time, that's kind of what's been happening for thousands of years in the Buddhist tradition with the Mahayana texts and also it's been what's happening in human history. You know, people claim to have it all figured out and some people are like no this is this is very hacky this is not it someone has not figured all this out and others are going to say actually yeah it seems like they do i'm going to believe them when they say this because of what they have presented and so there is that important point however we should also think about how theravada people have come to understand this in their own context Historically, we've mentioned before when reading this text that we suspect that this sutra came out of a doctrinal slash political conflict between monks who lived in the forest and monks who lived in populated areas. And their doctrinal debates, their political debates were a result of their differences in living situation. Urban monks that lived in villages and towns they saw people all the time and they dealt with stuff that I guess householders deal with a lot more frequently, whereas the forest monks were meditating in solitude and they didn't really have to deal with laity a lot. They were supported by the laity and stuff. And these categories are very porous and very, very poorly imposed on what was likely a gradient in reality, right? That's kind of how all of these things always are. But we suspect that it's this conflict of the forest and urban dwellers. And I think that a lot of the sniping we see when we see them say the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, a lot of this we can say, yeah, maybe that's the people who are devoted to the Arhat path, the people from the early teachings. But also, it very well could be the people that live in the forest and are meditating in solitude. Or it could be people who live in the cities and are meditating and practicing but they have not fully removed themselves from the world, and so they're not practicing in as complete a way as the forest dwellers, right? So we have to be critical and be questioning 
whenever we see a text say Hinayana, because that doesn't just mean the Arhats. That doesn't just mean the people that would eventually become Theravada. That could just be whoever they don't like, right? The forest dwellers could be the Hinayana because they're not saving sentient beings. They're not where people are at the same time, regardless of what they think of the Bodhisattva path, regardless of what they think of Mahayana texts that have already come out. And the urban dwelling monks could be the Hinayana because they are still attached. They are still attached and they're not completing their practice by fully renouncing from the world. So it's complicated. It's complicated to know. And scholarship has sort of drawn this line over the last 250 years in English between Hinayana and Mahayana along this Theravada line, this Southeast Asian versus East Asian line. But that might not actually be fully valid to do. And so whenever we see this sniping, it's often a lot more personal than it even sounds, if that's possible. (laughs) That's hard to do. Yeah, it's a lot more personal to whoever the authors themselves didn't like in that moment, if that makes sense. Factions within Buddhism, because these schools are not defined at this time period when this is being authored. Everybody is practicing, you know, the path of the Buddha, or they're doing stuff that involves Buddhist sutras and Buddhist icons. But to say they are Theravada, Mahayana, to say they are Sarvastivada, Madhyamaka, Nikaya, any of this stuff, it doesn't make sense to say that. We can't, you know, this stuff is so soupy in the early periods that it's impossible to assert that one way or the other. So we can't really believe it whenever texts do that themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get what you mean. Like, there's half of the world and 2,000 years of context gap between us. So it makes sense that there's going to be details like that that get lost. However, I'm not sure that the particular of those details changes my criticisms. It just changes which direction they're going. And like, it's not the targets that I'm objecting to here. It's the means. I don't know that there would be any combination of factions where this kind of denigration and negation would be acceptable, especially in the Buddha's voice, like in the voice of the figure being said here. Like, this is the Buddha saying that previous followers were lesser in this text. If the Buddha was a real person and, like, was on this earth, I could very easily conceive of that person being very angry at somebody else putting those words in his mouth. So, it's... The problem isn't the targets or the doctrine here, it's the way it's being done is really nasty. It's funny you bring that up, actually, because there's a scene I just thought of earlier in the sutra where 1,200 followers of the Arhat path get up and leave because they don't agree with what the Buddha is saying. And they don't say anything, and the Buddha doesn't say anything to them, but the text tells you, oh, by the way, these people who followed the Arhat path, they thought this was all stupid, and they... That's such a petty detail to add. Yeah, (laughs) and they get up and leave. They do eventually come back because they do become enlightened, but I think that it's really funny that the text tells you, oh, by the way, like a handful of these people get up and leave because 
they just can't hear this anymore. And I think that it's possible that it, that really happened in history. I could easily see that. But yeah. then the text will tell you that later they came back and they believed it and they believed the sutra and they – now that is a lot less historically likely. <laughs> I think the text yeah. decided, hey, this is a moment where we could bring these people back because even they eventually got it. <laughs> you know. But it's funny because they leave and they're not here for the entire preaching of the sutra. Like they miss this chapter. They they leave in like chapter two, I think, or chapter one even, and they come back in one of the twenties, like near the very end. And so they miss all of the parables and they miss the preaching on skillful means and they miss this chapter about the immeasurable lifespan of the Buddha. And then they come back and suddenly their Buddhahood is prophesized by Shakyamuni. And he's decided that they do actually have it, even though they missed the whole sermon. I think it's fascinating that they get to become enlightened, even though they didn't listen to anything and they actually rejected it outright. And then eventually decided, no, we don't actually reject it, even though they hadn't even heard any of it. Yeah. I've made a lot of criticisms here, but I will also fully acknowledge that these are criticisms that pop up all over the place. These are not... Some of the criticisms I'm having here are not criticisms necessarily of this text or of Buddhism. It's criticisms of humanity. And yeah, you're going to see those everywhere. Like for a Christian context, there's the whole idea of the Whore of Babylon was a, as a political spat between Catholics that has since been codified in, into the text. I suspect there's a lot of that going on in Buddhist texts that, that we're just not able to recognize. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of stuff like that. And because it's so distant and because the original Sanskrit is actually mostly gone in most cases, it's really, really hard to hammer all that stuff down. You know, because one of the biggest difficulties in studying Buddhism down to its origin point. You can study it in history at various points to varying degrees of success, but you can't always draw a straight line back to its origin point. And the reason why is because the banana leaves that they wrote the Sanskrit text down on- Don't preserve. Yeah, they don't preserve. Even though they were written down centuries after the Buddha died even to begin with, even still, it just falls apart. And then you know you get to China and- Chinese paper at the time was just better. Chinese ink was just better. Chinese archival storage methods were just better, and those things were able to survive longer. And so, some of the original original texts that we have of stuff, even if it'll be something that fits into the Pali Canon, it's often only extant in Chinese in its earliest form. And so, so much of that stuff is just lost to time, and it's a real shame because. I'm sure that it would actually make a lot more of this, make a lot more sense and give it a lot more context and make it either make it something that is like, oh, this isn't actually as problematic as we thought, or make it even more of an outlier and say, okay, this is clearly not what most people were doing and thinking about. Maybe we shouldn't regard this as the most important, the biggest, the most influential necessarily at least until a different part of history. Because I do want to say that it's important to know that the Lotus Sutra, in combination with the Heart Sutra, is the most influential text in Buddhism in all of East Asian history. It's the most influential text in China and Japan and Korea and Vietnam. 
there is no other Buddhist text that has more of an impact on actual practiced Buddhism and also Buddhist art and literature and iconography and stuff like that. It is the most important and influential text. And there are a million different ways to interpret like what is actually the central teaching and what is actually the important part of it and in what way does it exert influence. And we could talk about power imbalances. We could talk about the resources of people who focused on this text and not others. But I think that the important point is that the whole thing fits into this sort of like unending Mobius loop of reasoning. It's not even circular reasoning because it's not saying that it's right because it's right. It's saying that it's right because other things are partially right and this is the most right. And why is it right? Because other things are partially right and this is the most, and it keeps going in that sort of Mobius loop in various ways to various scales and limits over and over and over and over again. And it just infects people's minds. When I read this and I fully understood the doctrine of skillful means as it's presented here, I, I started to have like a small existential crisis because I was like, oh my God, everything is a skillful means. Everyone, even me, is a skillful means. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think that now, but if you really, really like pull it apart in your mind and you start to really think about why stuff happens in the sutra the way that it does, then you'll start to say, oh gosh, even the guy who got up and left was doing it as a skillful means. What does that even mean? You know, and it just, it can really take root if you don't initially bounce off of it and just hate it. And for that reason, I think that it becomes very important and very influential in East Asian history. I can see why it's important and influential. Like, again, I really liked chapter 15. I see how this could very easily capture the imagination. It succeeded with me. Like, if I hadn't read chapter 16, I'd be like, man, that was great. But I read chapter 16, and like, I would have been one of those arhats who walked out. Like, I wouldn't have necessarily done it then, but right here, I definitely would have. Because like, Unless we are talking in such metaphorical terms that don't know how useful it is to even try and analyze this at all, like, this is an inversion of the Parinibbana Sutta. And here's me just being me, my own context and this, but I think that it's very healthy to get people okay with the idea of death. And one of the best ways to do that, I think, is to show a powerful and wise figure accepting death gracefully. The Parinibbana Sutta does that, and then this Sutta undoes that. In a way, like, and, unless, again, we're just talking like when he says an immeasurable lifespan, he's talking about the Dharma. If that's what we're talking about, then it's, then okay, but the language of the text I'm reading doesn't read that way. It reads to me like saying, no, actually, I just pretended to die so those idiots would believe me. And not only is that disrespectful, but I also think it's unhealthy. And so because of that, like, this is one where I'm just not gonna, I just bounce off of, at this chapter real hard. I'm glad that you brought that part up because I think that it's important to know if you, go into this believing the Buddha and the texts and the sermons that he gives, 
before you've read this one, before you actually have a chance to decide one way or the other about this. The idea is that this sermon did come chronologically before the Parinibbana Sutta in the Buddha's life. And so his thought process is that the people who go into his death will have already heard this and hopefully then will not be as grieved when he actually does die. There's an interpretation out there that points to the people who cried versus the people who didn't cry whenever he died. And this is, of course, in Lotus Sutra Buddhism in particular. So it already kind of has bought what the Lotus Sutra has to sell wholesale. But it says that the people who cried were the ones that heard the Lotus Sutra and didn't accept it. And so they were still very attached and still very sad and very unenlightened whenever the Buddha died. And the ones that didn't cry were the ones that kind of got it, that had understood the meaning of chapter 16, the immeasurable lifespan. Now, it should be clear that what is going on in that interpretation is that they are prioritizing the Lotus Sutra logic over any other sutra logic, and they're making that their hermeneutic, they would say in the scholarly world, their interpretive framework for all other texts. And that's its own thing, right? We can't do that all the time. That's kind of, you have to be aware that that will bias your interpretive framework, whatever text you use, you know, to do that. So that's one interpretation there. But then the other side too is the authors, Mahayana Buddhists, you're saying that it was sort of unhealthy that they were not okay with the Buddha dying. And so they kind of wrote him into immortality because they weren't okay with it. And they said, if you do think that the Buddha still does die, even after we've written him into immortality, then you're just stupid. That's exactly what's going on in this text. Those authors absolutely do have that agenda. Because, you know, like I said earlier, this Mahayana inclination to go back over and deal with the death of the Buddha in a doctrinal fashion is everywhere in other texts, but it's turned up to 11 in this one. And so I do think that if you look at it historically, this text did not come before the Parinibbana Sutta. It came before the Mahayana version, but it did not come before the first existing version of the text. And so from a historical perspective, this text is dealing with the death of Shakyamuni in a direct fashion, even though technically in the chronology of his life, he hasn't died yet. He's giving the sutra. What they're doing is they're putting it into his voice to deal with his death in the way that they want to deal with it. And I can agree that there's problems with doing that. And reverse engineering a giant doctrine accordingly from your particular way of dealing with the Buddha's death, that's also kind of problematic and creates some tough points where I can totally understand people rejecting it outright and bouncing off of it at its face because it's it's not really in accordance with the earlier stuff that the buddha preaches and so i'm not sure that we can really take it too far other sutras write in the buddha's voice all the time that's that's kind of all we have is texts where people write in his voice because they're kind of reciting it based on memory and we just have to trust that their memory is good but here i think they've misused it a little bit in some places you know, there's, as we've already said, there's only so much one can do about it. And it is entirely possible that if I had the full context of this and I had the the prerequisite knowledge to fully understand this, I would be eating my words. I fully admit that. But 
I don't have any of those things. I only have what I have, and the text says what it says. So I'm not sure what else there is for me to say about that. Like, just, I disagree with what this is trying to do. So, and, and that's at a point where it's like, yeah, this is religion. And at some point you have to draw that line, that line of, I believe this or I don't. And again, I'm agnostic. So I don't I don't believe in the literal truth of any of this necessarily, but I'm also trying to understand Buddhist thinking and be able to think like a Buddhist as much as I can from these texts. And this text is utterly incongruous with the framework that I have personally developed. That framework may be wrong. I might be completely out of line on this, but this reads separately. If I did not already know that this was a Buddhist Sutra coming into it, I'm not sure that I would see this as the same religion because what it is saying is so incongruous with what I have encountered before. Well, and this text is very much a pivotal point and a hinging point in Buddhism in history, because if we take a more affirming view of it, not necessarily one that believes everything that it says has literal truth, but one that is giving it the benefit of the doubt and affirming the positive possibilities of the outcomes of the text, then we can start to see how it cascades into esoteric thinking. We can see how it cascades into Zen thinking. And we can see how it actually serves as an example of one of those texts that a Westerner would read in the colonial era, translated into English, of course, and would not look at it as world-negating and nihilist and fatalist. Because you have written in the script here, if the Buddha doesn't enter extinction, does anyone? And the answer that this text provides is no, nobody enters extinction. No one enters complete and total extinction in the conventional sense that we have understood it up to this point. In fact, the entire Dharma, the capital D Dharma, has taken on this sort of alignment with all of phenomenal reality. So first off, you can become enlightened and learn the capital D Dharma from anything, anyone, anywhere. And also, you are a part of that Dharma yourself, and therefore you have an immeasurable lifespan as well. Ah. Your delusions and your attachment to yourself, these things are impermanent, and these things don't last, and these things absolutely do go away. Delusion and ignorance, these things are not permanent in any sense. But the enlightened nature of you, that is something that's permanent. The enlightened nature of all people around you, all living sentient beings around you, those things are everlasting because they're part of this universal dharma. So you can see that this is a doctrinal foundation upon which esoteric thinking and Zen and Tendai and, of course, Nichiren, all of their doctrinal developments sit on top of this, of this affirmation that Buddhahood and Bodhisattvahood and thus Big D Dharma immortality is possible and real and is the universal law of reality. It kind of solves this debate, which we've had ongoing, which is like, what is the ultimate outcome? Either everybody does become enlightened, and that's just how the world goes, or they don't, and only a few do, right? The answer is everybody does. Because Buddhism is speaking on a scale of all sentient beings, 
the question comes up sometimes, given infinite time or immeasurable time, what happens? Does everybody become enlightened? Do only a few people become enlightened? In the absence of a Buddha, of course. And one answer that some schools provide is only a few people do. And the answer that this text provides is everybody eventually does. I guess it's just me being weird, but the idea of this making existence eternal is a bad thing in my head. I don't want to exist eternally. That's one thing I found comforting to see in earlier writing is that existence does have an end. And so I guess you could see it as responding to the needs of different readers. I know a lot of folks would find me very strange for not wanting an eternal existence. So this text, I guess, provides that option and probably part of why it resonated is because that's a much more comforting option to a usual reader. I guess that could be part of why this endured is because what it was saying was more comforting to the average reader. Well, it's also important to know, too, that this is not now suddenly saying that we have an Atman or a soul or a capital S self. Yeah. The only thing, the only part of you that persists is the Dharma nature or the Buddha nature of you and everything else, even the part of you that has the aversion to permanent existence, even that part will stop existing. So delusions and ignorances and fears, but also joys and euphorias and positive attachments, all of those things are said to be closed loops. They only sort of exist because of themselves. But then there's like a foundation underneath those things, which in some way or the other is the original and fundamental cause for those things, but regardless is still a persistent foundation. That is the thing that lives forever and persists onward. And so the debate becomes, to what degree is my nature that of Buddha nature and Dharma nature, and to what degree is anything else, right? And so this will get us very deeply into sort of esoteric readings of the Lotus Sutra, and we don't need to get into that right now. But the idea is that essentially phenomenal reality as we see it, and our phenomenal selves as we see ourselves, the memories we have, the likes and dislikes we have, and also the way everything in the world appears to us, the colors, the shapes, the textures, the weights and masses of things, all of these characteristics, all of those things are fleeting and closed loops and subject to impermanence. And the nature of them that does persist, the Dharma nature of them that does persist, is ineffable, is something that we can't see in those things or in ourselves unless we are fully enlightened. And so it's confusing. They say that everything does have Buddha nature and Dharma nature and does live forever in that sense. It is eternal because it is the Dharma and it is Buddhahood. But if you look for it, you very well might not be able to find it. So is it really there? <laughs> it's kind of confusing. It's kind of difficult to know. And at that point, my engineer side goes, it's also not necessarily useful to know at this point. And I'm not sure even that the Buddha would disagree because a lot of what he's talked about has been about focusing on what can be done in the here and now, right? 
Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, this is all of these texts that we read. This might be a wrong interpretation, but it is certainly my interpretation is that they are all different attempts to show somebody something, someone in the audience or someone who will read this in the future, show them something that makes their life a little bit better. I've been very thankful that I've been able to actually go to a real Buddhist temple because there were none where I lived before and go there on a weekly basis because it reminds me that all this bodhisattva path stuff and all this Buddhahood path stuff, all the real actual importance of it is making everyday people's lives suck less. And so I've been able to sort of reconnect with the part of it that I kind of care about and the part of it that makes me want to keep studying it and keep working in a circle that concerns this is because it's actual real life helping. It's actual real life serving. It's actual real life remedying of suffering. And I think that it's important to note that that can be done in a completely non-religious fashion. And it often is done that way, especially in Buddhist contexts. And so that's kind of why I'm comfortable in it. And that's kind of why I like it is because it's very real and it's very practical. And so I can read all these texts, the Lotus Sutra, Heart Sutra, Parinibbana Sutra, all of these other ones as being just repeated attempts to show the audience something cool that will make their lives a little bit better or will help them go make someone else's life a little bit better. And the way that the Lotus Sutra would have you do it is to have somebody share the Lotus Sutra with somebody else. And we can say that that's a little problematic. We don't like that. That doesn't really jive with our own sort of problems that we bring, right? But luckily, there's other texts out there. There's the Heart Sutra, which doesn't say, go give the Heart Sutra to everyone you meet. That's not the way that you're going to help everybody feel better, right? You're given thousands and thousands of different tools, some of which we might conventionally think of as quote-unquote religious, and some of which then, as a result, we might bounce off of. But others are just like, you know how you have this anxiety and this unsatisfactoriness in your daily life? Luckily for you, all of that is impermanent. Someday, somehow, some way it will go away. I hope that's comforting in some way, you know, and then just move on. That's not, in my eyes, quote unquote, religious on its face. It's definitely religious because it comes from a religion, but as a means of remedying someone's suffering who's right in front of you, I think that that's pretty cool. And I enjoy that. And I get to see that in sort of a real context at the temple that I go to. And so that's, that's really nice. And that kind of allows me to look at texts like the Lotus Sutra, which has the problems that it has, and be like, yes, it has this problem. It has these issues, and I bounce off of these parts. But ultimately, it's just another tool that someone has tried to use to make somebody else's life suffering be less. And that's that's cool. That's good. And so, I'm not saying I assume that authors of these texts always have the best intentions for everybody all the time at heart, but I am saying that this has become used as a tool to help people feel better over history and in the present day. And that's good. Making people feel better is a really good thing. And whatever they need to feel better, whether it's rote religiosity in this context, like the Lotus Sutra gives you, or not, that's something you can still use to help them feel better. So that's kind of what I appreciate about it. Yes, and I don't mean to denigrate anybody who finds the Lotus Sutra comforting. 
like, go for it. If this works for you, great. It's just this one really doesn't work for me, and by my view, weakens other things that came before that did work for me. So, on that level, I'm having a visceral reaction to it. But I, even in this, like, at the beginning of this, I was talking about how I thought chapter 15 was good, and the way Maitreya questions the Buddha is a healthy doctrine. So, like, it's not that I hate the whole thing at all. There's good stuff in here, and for all of the weariness I'm giving our author uh, uh, for chapter 16, they also wrote chapter 15, which had a message that is rare in religion that I really like. So it's it's complicated, I guess. This is a big document that covers a lot of ground, and... I like some of it, I don't like all of it, and in this case, the part that I don't like hits harder than the parts that I do like. So, that's where I end up on this one. As much as I liked chapter 15, I really dislike chapter 16. The really dislike hits harder for me. Absolutely, and there are, pe- there are going to be people out there who like the parables a lot more than they like chapter 16, or they'll like the prophecies of Buddhahood that come in the next several chapters, you know, like 17 through 20-something, they'll like those better than they like the first 10 chapters and stuff like that. This sutra is so big, it has really something for everybody. I think that everybody who comes to it will find something that they think is cool or that they enjoy. And for that reason, I think it's important to remember that the completed 28-chapter text that we have in front of us is a Frankenstein text. There are many, many, many layers of authorship that have led to the text we have today. Layers of authorship and compilation. And so, I don't know, if you say you like or don't like the Lotus Sutra, and I'm not saying you particularly are docs, I'm just saying in general, if you say you don't like the Lotus Sutra, you either haven't read it or you haven't told me what specific part you're bouncing off of. Because there's even other sutras that are preached in this text. For example, chapter 1 is the Immeasurable Meanings Sutra, which is an entirely other sutra that is not copied and transcribed, but is directly referenced because the Buddha preaches it. And there's also the Avalokiteshvara Sutra, or the Kanon Kyo in Japanese, the Guanyin Jing in Chinese. That's chapter 28, I believe. And that is an entirely own independent sutra from elsewhere that is just globbed on into this text. And there's there's several sutras that serve as their own thing, but are referenced or are globbed into this sutra. And so if you don't like it, you kind of have to say, well, I don't like this about it, or I don't like this chapter, or I don't like this group of chapters, because there's so much going on. I often think of it as an attempt in some way to create an all-encompassing self-contained universal text in the same way that Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd is like a circular, closed-loop, all-encompassing sort of album. You can play it in a circle and it makes sense. And I think that the point of this text is to play it in a circle and it'll still make sense. Hmm. I can see that. I can't really assess that claim until I read the whole thing, and that's going to take a while, but We'll probably come back to this at some point. 
it's too important a text not to. I certainly think we will. There's more chapters in there that I think are important that we'll definitely get the chance to read and discuss. Thank you for joining us for our reading and discussion of chapters 15 and 16 of the Lotus Sutra. We hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot and got something out of our discussions. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. See you next time.